Thanks for joining us again. Tom Atkins' week continues to roll on, Jared. We we gave the people a lot of Atkins in the last film. Mm. Gave the Nobody would say too much Atkins. Gave the people what they want. Exactly. We gave kind of peak Atkins. Well, not quite peak. He peaked a couple of years before Maniac Cop, but... You know, we got a bit of a solid performance from Atkins. We got him at his most charismatic. I mean, I was thinking about this the other day, Jared. Imagine if we'd have done Night of the Creeps, The Fog, and Halloween 3 in mm. a city. Oh, I mean, that's too much charisma for we anyone. We couldn't there. have taken it. We couldn't have handled it. <laughs> the charisma so, would have just knocked tonight. us off our feet and we would have, wouldn't have been able to finish Atkins' week. So we had to sort of... We had to just take a small hit of charisma and then sort of taper off a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it was like we took a yeah, we took a heavy hit with Maniac Cobb and now we're just kind of just coming down a little bit with these next two films. Yeah. Which are more what I would consider cameo Atkins. Mm. Is that fair? Yeah. Not a lot of Atkins, but as per usual, what he does is all class. Of course. So tonight's film is 1981's Escape from New York by Mr. John Carpenter. So before, uh, let's just skip through all the, the usual stuff and here we'll take a break. Here's the trailer to Escape from New York. States rises 400%. 1991, the United States police force is formed. 1997, New York City is a walled maximum security prison. John Carpenter's Escape from New York. Kurt Russell. Van Cleef, Ernest Borgnine, Donald Pleasance, Isaac Hayes, Season Hubley, Harry Dean Stanton as Brain. Escape from New York, the ultimate adventure of escape and survival. Escape from New York, written and directed by John Carpenter, who of course gave us Halloween, produced by Deborah Hill, who produced The Fog, and Larry Franco, who produced White House Down. It's written written by John Carpenter and Michael Myers himself, Nick Castle who also wrote The Boy Who Could Fly. Mm. It stars Kurt Russell as Snake Plissken, Lee Van Cleef as Hawk, Ernest Borgnine as Cabby, Donald Pleasance as the President, and Tom Atkins as Remy. The budget was $6 million, and it made $25 million worldwide. 
the opening narration and the computer's voice in the first of the prison scenes are actually provided by an uncredited Jamie Lee Curtis. Mm. Look, I had not seen Escape from New York in some time, and I'm talking probably about 30 years. Jesus. Essentially, I remember seeing it a long time ago when I was a young man yep. and hadn't really revisited it in a while. I actually enjoyed it quite a bit. It's a pretty good sci-fi action sort of flick. It's kind of forgotten amongst Carpenter's 70s and 80s output a little bit. You know, everyone talks Halloween, everyone talks The Thing. Not as much talk about Escape from New York. It's a really good idea, and it's supported by, I think, a pretty pretty solid sort of anti-hero in Pliskin. It has some nice sort of thriller beats and some, um, of course, brief but very impressive performance from Tom Atkins. But uh, the lack of budget actually shines through a little bit. And there's also Carpenter's kind of lack of action chops as a director kind of comes through a little bit as well. But certainly didn't dampen my enthusiasm for the whole thing. And I gave it three and a half. I ended up at exactly the same. I had seen it more recently. It's a funny one. I've gone back and forth on it. The first time I saw it, I wasn't impressed at all. And then I revisited it again not that long ago and really enjoyed it. Also picked up the sort of the special edition Blu-ray with a lot of features that had dropped just recently. So this was about, I think this was the fourth time I've, I've watched it. And I, yeah, I was expecting, based on the last time, I thought I'd probably end up at about a four. But you're right, a couple of the things that, that sort of um, hurt it were a little more apparent to me this time around. So I, I went for a three and a half as well. I think you're right. I, I think that the premise is just excellent. Yeah. It's a, it's a spot-on action movie premise. And as you said, a really solid lead character with a, with a very, very good actor in that role. But the, the other actors that are sprinkled throughout it are also top-notch. As you said, this one kind of goes forgotten, but this is quite possibly the deepest cast that Carpenter's ever had. And that's oh, saying yeah, something because no, yeah. he, he gets good performers, but this has got the Carpenter regulars as well as a couple of extra sprinkled in there. I mean, Tom Atkins alone, <laughs> that, 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 that puts you right up the top of the pile, but then you sprinkle in some oh. Harry Dean Stanton and some Lee Van Cleef and, like, yeah, the, the cast is excellent. The downfall for me this time around is that I did notice a bit more of, uh, as you mentioned, the, the sort of budgetary issues. There's times when it it doesn't have to be New York. It could just be any old urban setting. And I think that really hurts it, that it doesn't sort of get to show you the scope of New York. Yeah. And unlike most of Carpenter's work, there is a bit of slow burn here, a little bit of build-up, but there's also these dull patches that I just don't find in that classic Carpenter. You know, we're talking the Halloweens, you know, the thing. Even the fog and they live, for me, doesn't have the dull patches that this one does. Yeah, and I, I think I can probably put my finger on why that is, is that action films require frenetic, explosive set piece, you know. The best action films always have... Certainly the best action films during this year. I mean, to give Carpenter a little, cut him a little bit of slack, it was 1981. 
you know, mm. and we hadn't yet to get to that that sort of golden period in the late 80s of action films where we kind of got the balance between frenetic action and, you know, story. So the story's there, but the problem that Carpenter's direction brings is similar to what works in Halloween and The Thing, and that is slow build, drag it out, you know, build the suspense and atmosphere. Even then, though, but you I can't don't think do this, that in an action film. I don't think the story is all is all that much there either. There's, I mean, there is elements, but as I said, there's a couple of flat spots. Once where, you get inside, once you really actually get inside like, Manhattan, yeah, there's a couple of flat spots where it doesn't feel like too much is is going on. And I mean, you're right. We hadn't hit the diehards yet. We hadn't really set the template for what what we now know as an action movie, but we had come from Westerns where where you got similar sort of action, you got similar things of someone having to get into somewhere that, that they're not welcome and they're going to get shot if they go in there and things like that, that have done it better than this. So yeah. I don't know if it's just necessarily the set pieces and things like that. I just don't think it's it's Carpenter's strongest. But it's, that's not to say it's bad. It's it's very enjoyable. But I just feel, yeah, there's there's those, those few sort of flat spots. And, and I think, um, yeah, those other films that I mentioned that Carpenter did, they, they never really failed to grip you almost all the way through. So yeah. that's probably why I've dropped to a three and a half. I mean, even on his bad days, he's still miles better than, than – you'd still rather watch a John Carpenter film than 95% of other people's films. So, you know. Uh, yeah, I would agree. There's, there's still plenty of positives to talk about. Oh, yeah, and, and going straight into it, you mentioned the cast. I believe you called it the Department of Charisma. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The, the, and I mean, with on. Lee Van Cleef, Tom Atkins running around, the Federal Bureau of Charisma is really sort of. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> I and know, the Department work. of uh, the, the Department of Charisma with Pliskin and Co. Yeah, you, you can see why there was only a couple of them in there because you couldn't have too many of them in there without without sort of messing things up. <laughs> you only needed a quite certain frankly, amount of take charge. Quite frankly, we were right there. on a knife's edge, Jared. Yeah, we were on a knife's edge. Another scene of Atkins, and it tips the wrong way on that knife. Exactly, exactly. And it's got too much charisma. It's overloaded charisma. Yeah. But the cast is fantastic. It is. Um, it's excellent. I mean, Kurt Russell, for starters, yep. is fantastic in this role, uh, and I think it's his favourite. I think he's, he said that on the, um, on the commentary he does for the Blu-ray, that this is his favourite role that he's ever done. And you can kind of see it. It's it's one of those anti-hero roles that I think really works. But then get down to Lee Van Cleef. You've got Tom Atkins. I mean, shit, need I say more on that front. Donald Pleasance, Isaac Hayes, Harry Dean Stanton. Ernest uh, Borgnine. Ernest Borgnine, who I really liked. I actually thought Ernest Borgnine was really cool in those couple of little scenes we got of him. Yeah. And then you throw in people like, you know, Adrian Barbeau, Charles Cyphers in the background. I mean, Cyphers says pretty much fuck all until the last like, couple of minutes. Yeah. There's a number of scenes where you just see Cyphers hovering around the background and I'm waiting for him to say something. Yep. And he's fucking mute. Yeah, yeah. He's just standing <laughs> What are you doing here? Yeah. I think um, even that uh, Frank Doubleday character, I mean, he's I, would, I wouldn't say he's like a top-notch actor that, that you're putting in the same class as those other people, but he's actually really good in it too. Like, he's that creepy-looking bloke that just kind of, every time he's on there, you're sort of like, ugh. Like, Is he the guy who gets the, um, the, the cassette? Yeah, 
Yeah. And then um, trades it with Cabby. Yep. Yeah. Again, there's there's a lot to like about that cast. Absolutely. Uh, there's a lot to like about the score as well. Yes. I think it's another one of these Carpenter-style scores that, that synth stuff. And some people might say that, you know, they're a little bit derivative of each other, some of his scores. But it doesn't bother me. I mean, I love that type of stuff. No, because it's all, it's always good sort of moody stuff. He seems to just have a real sense of when it should kick in, when it should ramp up, when it should be that pulsating kind of he just he just knows when it when it works. And I think I mean, this one doesn't it probably lacks the real memorable kind of stuck in your brain quality that the Halloween theme had, that repetitiveness. But I dig it. I thought it was a, a, another really good one. The theme was was solid enough, but you know, yeah, when it when it when it needed to ramp up, he's it, yeah, yeah, he just has a sense of when it should and, and what it should sound like. We spoke about the 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 idea of Manhattan Island being turned into a gigantic prison mm. and basically becoming a law lawless sort of society into it unto itself. I just find found that to be a really, really awesome idea. Definitely. And then toss in the fact that the president has been hijacked and dropped into that that place. Yeah. Well it's one of these And a rescue mission needs to be done. I just think it's as it's it's as it's as solid an action idea as you'll get. Yeah, it's one of these ones that's a it's a, a grand sort of ridiculous premise. But it's just super effective for a, for an action movie. I mean, it immediately gets you like, right, yeah, how are they going to do this? You're interested in how it's going to go down, and yeah, it's just it's it's very simple, but works a treat for me. Especially being that it's set in in um, you know that futuristic setting and and taking that that the most one of the most famous cities in the world to set it in is just a good idea. I mean, I don't know why anyone would want to make New York a prison, even in the 80s when, obviously, Jason was roaming around and Maniac Cop was getting around and, you know, things were looking pretty rough <laughs> in New York. But even then, even then, it had... It I had mean, uh, Jesus Christ, I would have loved, I'd rather live in fucking Afghanistan. <laughs> <laughs> even then, though, it had <laughs> potential, didn't it? Like, yes. I, I forgot, I forgot the fucking Maniac Cop was there too. <laughs> you, got, you got Jason there, then you got fucking Maniac Cop running around. yeah, yeah. Jesus. <laughs> uh, yeah, the toxic Oh, yeah, you can't, even, you can't even jump into the sewers to get away from them. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's just yeah, you know great what, premise. Though? Great premise. I think it's one of the all-timers. I would actually love to see. I mean, this this for me is on remake remake watch because it's just such oh, a good yeah. idea. And with the, with, the, um, no doubt. with the budgets you would get behind a, a premise like this now and a movie with a name, I mean, I would love to see see this redone with with the big budget. Yeah, and it's ripe to be retold as a remake. And my only concern with it is it's hard to see anyone else. I mean, I know Pliskin only has two films. You know, he only has two films, and I believe Escape from LA is a disaster. (laughs) But... He kind of sits pretty highly or just below, you know, you guys like Indiana Jones and John McClane and those guys who you can't really see anyone else playing that role. Yeah, see, this is where I'm, I'm a little bit... I don't know. I, I think Russell is really good, but he's... Oh, I don't hold Snake Plissken in that esteem myself. 
Really? Yeah, and that's... Uh, you see him a touch lower. I see him as a touch lower, so I'd be I'd be happy as for someone someone else to take it on. That's no no diss to Kurt Russell, but when I look at it, I'm like, that's that's Kurt Russell with an eye patch. I don't see Snake Plissken. I don't, which is a bit different to when I watch Die Hard and I see yeah, I, I see McLean, not Bruce Willis. It's sort of like I, I don't know. It, it, he falls a little bit differently there for me. Yeah. I mean, it'd be like someone playing um, Gabe Cash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or Ray Tango. I mean, if anyone did that, I'd be up in arms. I'd be saying, no, you can't do that. But Snake Plissken's available. <laughs> Look, you can do Plissken, but don't even think about going with bloody Cash. No. It's off limits. No, that's right. Oh, okay, well, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being a little over the top there. I mean, he's, they agreed. He's not on par. It's not on par with those... Two that I mentioned, yeah, because it's got a reasonable fan base. I think this it film. does, yeah. And I look, I know I'm in the minority, and, and some of the hardcore fans might be a little more wary of seeing someone else in the role. But the bottom line is, this is ripe for a remake, and Kurt Russell can't play Snake Plissken, yeah, anymore. So, and I, you know what, you got to go with someone else. See, here's another reason why I'm open to it. I was reading a little article the other day about Lee Wan L being a possibility. As someone that, you know, yeah, would be in mind. And he spoke about that he would like to cast Wyatt Russell, which I think yeah, would be kind of cool. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. I think it would be cool to see. Yeah, because Winnell, I read something that Winnell's writing the next draft or something. Yeah. Is that not correct? Uh, well, there hasn't been a lot of news for quite a few months, but I think that was that was sort of the last that I'd... Um, because Robert as Rodriguez well. was tipped initially, wasn't he? Yeah, which I mean, shit. I would love to see his take <laughs> on this material. I mean, I can't imagine what he would do to New York, but it'd be it seemed like it would be it would be good fun. But Lee Wynell's a, a really good good call as well, I think, and especially well, I, given I think Wynell would be a better choice. Strangely enough, I mean, Rodriguez has more of an action. Pedigree, yeah. But then if you watch, uh, I think Wynell might take the if you watch Upgrade. Juan Els yeah. did it very well, you know. I guess I'm, I'm looking at it from the, the, the perspective of Wanell seems to dig a little deeper into some of the, the subtext of some of the movies he's recently made, like The Invisible Man and, and Upgrade and things like that. Mm. And it might that might be a good thing for this story. But, uh, yeah, he's, I mean, Upgrade convinced me that, that he can do action. Like, <laughs> he can definitely do action. Yeah. He did a great job with some but, of the sequences um, in that. I mean, getting back to what I was saying, I just think that the whole thing is is ripe to be remade just because the idea is rock solid. Um, and it actually, to me, has parallels very much to Assault on Precinct 13. Yeah, definitely. In a sense that you've got this incredibly awesome idea that's so simple. Yep. Precinct 13 is the simplest of stories, cut off by your own people and forced to protect yourself and, you know, band with the criminals. Mm. It's a simple idea, but it works a treat. And it also, not a bad remake, that was, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. I enjoyed that one. So I think there's a lot to like about the plot and the, and the premise, and further to it could actually bring something to a remake and go into some directions that aren't covered here. It's yeah. probably one of its negatives, and we'll get to, but... I actually didn't mind the opening sequences where 
you kind of get that voiceover that's saying that once you enter, you don't leave. Yeah. And then you have those two guys trying to escape. Yep. Across the river. Mm-hmm. And they just get blown out of the water. So it was a nice, cool way to showcase that even if you get out, or if, even if you make a run for it, you kind of no chance of getting out. There was a really small touch that I thought was, I mean, I started cracking up when I heard it, but when Pliskin's being taken through, there's a voiceover yeah. about, you know, what's what's going to happen. <laughs> the voiceover says, you have the option to be terminated and cremated before going in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I might take that one up, actually. <laughs> <laughs> looks like a shit of a place. But, yeah, I, I really like that too, the way they set the tone. And I th- yeah. think sort of tied into that is some of the effects. Considering they didn't have a whole lot to spend, I think they get a, they get some really good mileage out of the matte paintings and some of the effects. Yes. And they really use them to set the tone and to make some places look like other places. I mean, parts of them, it's bang on. But also, that's Carpenter. It's a it's a bit of a not, it's a bit of a uh, pat on the back for him in terms of, although New York doesn't, as 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 we get inside the Manhattan Island boundary, it's not quite the scope's not there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, to use New York the way you would want. Correct. But early on, he tries to set that tone. He does by having those matte paintings and those shots of helicopters flying. In front of the skyline and all that stuff, and does a yeah, does a pretty reasonable and that, that, job that of selling. Well, it. to at least set some tone. Yep, that unfortunately gets lost, but we'll get to that. Mm. It's great to see the opening. The opening shot of the film is a mustache quivering Tom Atkins. Oh, of course. Yeah, you know, I mean it's a subdued through. action. His shirt was done up, it's unfortunately. It's a subdued Atkins. He's he's there's no grog or ladies, but he's he's still, he's smoking like a chimney. He's still got a vice. Yeah, you know, <laughs> after we see him there talking to Van Cleef, he then pisses off to have a couple of beers. Oh, that's right. He knocks <laughs> off, finishes a six pack, comes back in. Does what he needs to do to Van Cleef, goes home on the way, stops at a bar and meets a beautiful woman. That's that's just yeah, what yeah. he does. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Remy... And basically says to her, says to her, that's a stupid question. Yeah. <laughs> when she says, where would you like to sleep tonight? I asked Remy if he could do the job and he said, nah, look, I've got a date tonight. So uh, uh, 24 hours isn't going to work for me. I, I can give you two. <laughs> Yeah, what's the ratio of ladies on two hideous scumbags in there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look, if we're talking 51% ladies, I could probably be talked into it. There they go, yeah, it's a 40% lady population. I'm out. <laughs> yeah, I think that's how it went um, down. I really like the sequence where Pliskin and um, Hawk come face-to-face and sit down to discuss the mission. Yeah. I really like that. And I think it's a, the, it starts off in that real sort of combative way where he goes, he asks to take his handcuffs off. And Hawk just goes, I'm not stupid, you know. Yeah, because you know that Pliskin's dangerous and if you let him out of the handcuffs, he's going to hurt him. This is where the casting is, is an absolute winner because – you know, they, they they put Lee Van Cleef in that, that particular role and because of his background in those Western-type films and, you know, reputation like a Clint Eastwood-type guy, you just get a rep as being a bit of a hard-ass for being in those pictures. 
and delivering those roles. And so it kind of legitimizes the kind of Wild West nature of the of New York. <laughs> you know, once you're in there, it's just it's it's sort of a free for all because yeah. Van Cleef is is that guy. You know, in some of those old pictures, he's the guy that gets sent in to do that. But in this, he's the guy that's sitting there going, fuck, I've got to find someone else to do it. <laughs> like, he doesn't <laughs> yeah, want to do it. Right. <laughs> um, exactly. So, it's, yeah, it sort of legitimises that, that free-for-all nature of, of when you get in there and the, the kind of fear about what's going to happen. Yeah, and I also love it. Just It just gives us a little bit of exposition about Snake. Yes. Without having to kind of show us. Yeah, well, know, the fact that he was in the special forces and he robbed a bank, he robbed the, robbed the Federal Reserve. That's why he's in incarcerated yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Essentially, his his entire anti-hero story is is set up right there because the rest of the film he's just a hero. He does the right things. Yeah. The anti-hero all comes from you know you've got that rap sheet, and we've had to jam something in your neck to ensure that you won't piss off on us. Yeah, and it also shows too that he kind of doesn't give a fuck about the president either. No, no, that was he one of my really want to do this. That was one of my favourite parts when they, you know, he, Lee Van Cleef mentioned, you know, you're not going to turn that thing 180 because we've just fucking ensured that that's not going to happen. I mean, I thought that was absolute cracking line. He's, you could see Snake kind of he's outsmarted him on that one, and sort of yeah, he's as you said. It, that sets up that Snake doesn't care about the job. He just wants sort of, you know, he just wants the, the, the deal at the end of it. Yeah, and I did like that. He wants to join Remy but, at the bar. Yeah, yeah. But they put those two things in his neck. You know, they create this no way out situation for him, mm. which I really liked. Uh, and I also love the ticking clock. I always like the ticking clock in these sorts of films. Yes. You've got 24 hours to get him there and get him out. Yep. And that clock is constant throughout. Mm-hmm. And that's a really, really, you know, it's simple but effective in any type of thriller. Yeah. I think it absolutely you can, works. You can tie that on there. Correct. I also want to know um, where we can get one of those escape pods. How high do you think the president bounced when he hit the ground in New York? Jesus. I mean... <laughs> Didn't have any fucking wings. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I thought when I saw it. I was like, he's just dropping. <laughs> Release the pod. <laughs> well, <laughs> the pod's going to be in so the So what happens? Does it just hit the hit the ground at speed? I mean, quite frankly, he'd probably be dead. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the, the thing might have got released just as they were cut, they were hitting Manhattan. Because I think the plane goes down as well. It's still hitting. It's not far from the look, plane. It's still crash. hitting pretty hard. The president's going to yeah. be rattled. <laughs> He's going to be rattled. Listen, I'm not opening the pod for anybody. <laughs> no, exactly. There's got to be a secret knock or something. <laughs> There's got to be. <laughs> I also really like the fact that once Pliskin gets in there. He locates the president's beacon very quickly. Yeah. But it's not on the president's hand. Yeah, yeah. Immediate sort of complication. And, yeah, so immediately, hang on, I now can't find the guy. I, don't, I, don't, I can't track him. Yes. I've got to find him on my own, and now I'm down to like 
20 hours. Yeah. So I really like that. I thought that worked well. I initially was a bit kind of not... I was a little bit taken aback by some of the groups that were in Manhattan. You know, it had a feel like Mad Max. Yeah. It's very much like Mad Max 2, actually, the way some of them were dressed and the like. Mm Mm-hmm. But I also kind of... I got kind of used to it and got a bit of a kick out of, like, when Pliskin first arrives there, he turns up at the theatre. Yeah. And Borgnine's sitting in the audience watching this weird... (laughs) Theatre production going on in front of him and laughing and having a great time. I'm just like, this is so out there. Yeah. But it kind of fits what would what would potentially be going on here. Yeah, well, it's it sort of fits the, you know, what they're talking about. Once you go into New York, you're not coming out. So they're sort of setting up this society in there. And I actually like that when he got in there and, yeah, you see him in the theatre there and you think, well... If there's that many people in there, there probably would be someone that wants to see a show eventually or whatever. So these things have, have kind of developed. As you said, it's like Mad Max. They've got the – they've developed their own forms of entertainment and things like that, which which continues on in that wrestling scene. I really like that one because it was kind of very 80s but then also had the bats and, and um, trash can lids kind of like gladiators as well. It was sort of like yeah. this cross between wrestling and a coliseum kind of vibe. And when when the Duke is talking in that one, you mentioned Mad Max. I also got sort of the vibes of the Warriors in that. Yes, so did I. So it was kind of, yeah, I, I, I dug that when, you, when you, you sort of saw the little factions and things like that. Yeah, the gangs and stuff like that. It, it very much had a Warriors vibe. Because, you know, even sort of the way it was shot um, felt very much like the Warriors. Mm. So it was a nice little mixture because the other thing about it is if you've got an entire island turned into a prison, you're gonna, there's going to be some kind of life created there. Yeah. And so if part of that is for some, for some group is to still... Do theatre productions? Well, that's what you, that's what you're going to get. So it was kind of good that it kind of showcased a bit of that. Yeah, well, it was sort of like as I said, it's 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 a prison, but it's essentially you get dropped in here and that's your life. Like no one's yeah. no one's getting out, but there's still kind of a, you know there's there's still a life to have to be lived in there, somewhat. So it it does make sense. But I, I spoke before about Ernest Borgnine. I just loved his his cab driver character. You know, it's kind of like he was still he was still working. Yeah. Somewhat, but then when he picks up Pliskin, he's talking to him like a normal cabbie would, but yet pulling out Molotov cocktails and hooking them out the fucking window. <laughs> this is yeah. This is it's kind of like what you would expect, but then twisted. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And he kind of is the only other character that. Actually, no, that's not true. Harry Dean Stanton and Adrian Barbeau have a bit of a, a bit more character sort of stuff. Yeah. Which I think pays off at the end. Yes. But most of the characters, it's very much sort of fleeting. It is. Apart from Pliskin, it's kind of like Pliskin just hitting the ground and running into all these people who have short stints in the film. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Pliskin himself, it was, this was in my likes, like his brooding is almost comical. <laughs> it's, 
it's kind of like I don't know. It felt a little bit like Jack Burton, <laughs> but with, without the overt <laughs> kind of comedy. But yeah, his his constant kind of gravel in the voice and uh, brain, you cross me again. <laughs> like you know, he just it um it worked for the piece because it is almost a comic like storyline. Um, it yeah. actually added a little bit of humour for me that he never kind of cut. That and, and it sort of cut into the seriousness and and made it a bit more enjoyable. Well, I guess with the weirdness and and sort of strange characters within the within the the island, you needed a hero who wasn't like who almost had that kind of comical style. Because imagine having a hero who was sort of bolt like just straight down the line. It just would have felt strange to have that. Yeah. It would have been at odds with what you had. I think so. And so in a way, Russell and Carpenter, I assume, you know, probably discussed this at length, but they've come to the right sort of conclusion about how their hero should be. Mm. And it, I would agree. He's almost over the top broody. He is. <laughs> it's just like, He's never he not cannot broody. drop for a second. He can't have a laugh. He can't fucking smile. No, no, that's right. I mean, it's just so hard, heavily laid on. But it, it, there's a little bit of a wink to it. I think so, yeah. And I think that kind of works and works well for what we have here. Yeah, it does. I loved Duke's motorcade. <laughs> I mean, there were chandeliers. <laughs> One car had a pair of chandeliers on the outside. I love that. And Duke is driving along in the middle of a car chase yep. with a gigantic disco <laughs> <laughs> I was looking for more of the steam-powered action that they mentioned early on. I was looking for some yes. sort of steam-powered contraption. <laughs> Didn't quite get it. Yeah, too much for the budget to handle. Yeah, yeah. But, no, that was that was funny. And it did, again, that, that sort of added a, that, that character to it, that sort of Duke's got what you need. He's got a motorcade. Sometimes it requires chandeliers instead of headlights because we're living in New York that's been cut off from everywhere else. But he can get it done. But it's kind of like how the sort of, I guess, the richest bloke in town, that's my assumption on him, like he's the most powerful man in town. Yeah. That's how he rolls when it's a lawless land. Well, that's know? right. That's exactly right. It's a, it fits that tone, that, that ridiculous kind of, that ridiculous vibe to it. And I, I actually, yeah. um, I felt like I wished he'd come into it a bit earlier. Yeah, kind of to, I think to create a a villain for Pliskin to kind of play off. Yeah. I think that would have been because, the way to go because he's the most powerful man in town. He's the complication. He's got the president. But it sort of feels a little bit compact. He doesn't doesn't seem like he's there for long. He is. I think it's about 40-odd yeah. minutes, but it still doesn't feel, feel that long. Yeah, I think it should have been set up early that he was around and then we get to know him. I mean, guess what they were trying to do is kind of step you through the hierarchy, mm. so to speak. Yeah, Borg Nine's your low-level guy, then you're on to... You're onto Harry Dean Stanton and that, and they're a bit higher up, got a bit more connection, and then you're onto the Duke. So I sort of see where they went, but I think he could have. It does work in that way, that but it feels bit. like it's strung out a bit. Yeah, I mean, minor complaint. I was happy to have happy to have the Duke in there. I too enjoyed the the wrestling match or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. 
strange sort of wrestling match mixed with gladiatorial stuff. Yep. And I really like the bit where he's basically, he's getting his ass handed to him and then he just pushes the big fella from the back and then just pulls out the bat and <laughs> buries it in the back of his head. That was awesome. And everyone just goes silent. Yeah. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> How did this guy manage to pull this off? So I really thought that I thought that was cool sort of shit. Yeah, I thought that was good. He, he sort of takes he's, he's getting his ass kicked, and it just takes that one little bit, that one little bit of an opening for him to to get the job done. And in a way, I actually saw um, uh, something like Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome took that. Yeah, yeah, it felt like that. I mean, it's a, a classic kind of David and Goliath sort of sort of setup, but. But it did have that. It did have that kind of um, feeling to it, especially given that Mad Max kind of shares the same sort of DNA, I guess. Yeah, I like the bit that they they're making their escape, and they kind of throw a little wrinkle into the mix. It's only a short wrinkle, but I liked it. They're making their escape, and they they're trying to hotwire a car or trying to get a car started. And they open the bonnet and one of Duke's men's in there. Yeah. And then Duke's Duke's guys just come out from and surround them and then they're on the run again, you know. It's kind of like, you know, we're about to escape, now we're put back into a different situation. I kind of like that. It just kind of took things. It didn't make it simple. Yeah, that was very cool. For them. Although Duke's men work fast. I mean, shit. <laughs> how, do you, how do you remove enough for that bloke to fit in there? With, you know, what, exactly. a fifteen-minute window, or. Uh, but I guess when you're the most powerful man in town, you can do that. Yeah, you've got some um, tools that are made out of the leftover parts of the chandelier that you've fucking latched onto the front of your truck, and <laughs> off you go. Uh, but no, well, that's that was, probably what it was for. Yeah, that was. I, I really liked that because it was so unexpected, and as you said, it instigated this this uh, extra complication on the way to the to the finish line I guess which is it's fairly standard stuff but it's what you expect and what you what you want to, to raise the action a little bit agreed this was probably one of my personal favorite parts of it the death of cabby which I actually felt held a little bit of emotion even though you know Borgnine's not in it greatly. But he was kind of like the nicest character in a sea of shit, you know? Yeah. And so his death kind of, it's a bit disappointing that he doesn't make it through. I'm wondering what he did but to then, get in there because he didn't seem to fit. Did he overcharge the wrong person on a fare or something and then get fucking tossed into New, <laughs> tossed into New yeah, York? That's right. <laughs> exactly. He didn't quite seem to fit the... The brief of all the other sort of strange and weird characters floating around, but yeah, I kind of liked him, so it was a bit disappointing that he didn't get through. Yeah, and it was. It's kind of a double whammy because Harry Dean Stanton dies seconds later, mm-hmm. and I thought the whole thing where Snake says to Adrian Barbo, "Let's go," and she just looks at him like, "Nah," and she basically just stands and delivers. To um, Duke as he's driving down the road, mm-hmm. it's kind of like a "fuck you." I thought that actually held a bit of weight. Yeah, and Duke just runs her over. You know, I just thought again they were characters that were kind of likable. Yes, I mean I was a, I was a big fan of the Brain character, even though great actor for one. 
But secondly, there's something about those characters that are sort of playing on their own team that always fits this theme. Yeah. You know, we mentioned Mad Max, how it's that lawless society. It's the same in Mad Max with, what's his name, Bruce Spencer's is characters. Yeah. Where Gyro. they're yeah. not really working with you. They're working with you if you can help them get what they need. But if, the, if the, you know, if they see an opportunity, they're off. But then when, you know, the, the, then when the shit hits the fan, they're your best buddy again. There's something about it that fits for these, for this, um, this setting, um, this lo- the lawless kind of land. And well, it, I think Harry Dean Stanton does a good job that you actually want him to make it through. Yeah. Even though he's morally not quite... <laughs> Not quite on the level. No, and he's willing to. He's willing to to stab you back instantly. Yes, if he if he gets the opportunity. But there was a likability, and I liked the relationship between him and Adrian Barbeau. It kind of worked. Yeah, and it seems to um, work because you know you see them as doing what they need to do to survive, and then when you get to see some of their schemes, and you think you know you get to see some of their bloody huckster kind of acts. That yeah. they used to get by, you, you kind of get a bit of comedic value out of it, and a bit of you start to like the characters for running this sort of this this way of surviving. Yeah, exactly. And and it it actually holds a bit of weight when they both die. Yeah. And sort of killing all three of those kind of, I guess you'd say, Pliskin's crew, in a sense in like a two-minute section there, again, as, as we're racing towards the exit, it does hold weight because it's kind of like, well, we like those people and we wanted them to survive. That was part of what we were hoping for. Mm. But unfortunately, you know, it doesn't happen. But, but I think it works well. Good old Donnie Pleasant's going apeshit with a gun. Oh, magic. I mean, he's fucking gleefully <laughs> gibbering up the top. <laughs> he's, uh, he's shooting people left and right, including the Duke. <laughs> yeah. Loves it. He's really talking not a fan of really talking a bit of trash to the Duke. Fucking disco balls. Yeah, he really, he, he really sort of, you know, he talks talks a bit of trash to the Duke and lets him know all about it when he's on his way out. So, always a fan of seeing Donald Pleasance in in a John Carpenter movie. And it's classic Pleasance too, so he really loads up <laughs> the ham. He opens the tin of Spam and continues to <laughs> toss it around. I mean, look, this, this is still an ongoing conversation. I'll, 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 t- I'll say that he's possibly opened a can in this one, but if you tell me he's opening a can in Halloween again, I'm just going to I'm gonna blow up. Uh, look, he really opens a can in Halloween too. Yeah, that's probably fair. Quite, quite frankly, he bought out the entire fucking supermarket <laughs> of spam and opened all of them uh, on Halloween too. Uh, it's called Gravitas, well, it gets mate. Worse, I think, he, as opened he, goes few, along, he opened a few cans of Gravitas. Couple of Gravitas cans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he probably opens a can of Gravitas in Halloween. Look, from four I mean, Tom onwards, Atkins had opened from several four cans. Onwards, of... It's a spam factory. But <laughs> Halloween two. Yeah, the courtroom and that sort of business. There's plenty of gravitas being held there. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I mean, anyone else? I mean, and Tom those Atkins, lines. of course, was opening cans of um, charisma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mixed with Old Spice. <laughs> yep. A hint of stale beer. 
<laughs> Cigarettes. <laughs> Sex. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. That's his scent. What's Tom Atkins' scent? Like, if he had a, he had a cologne, what would it be? Well, we've just, we've just, that's what it is. <laughs> There's notes of the beer. But what would it be called, I wonder? Good question. Good question. T.A. Yeah. I'd call it Chalice myself. Chalice <laughs> by Atkins. <laughs> Yeah, no, but the chalice, the chalice um, version is just pure alcohol. <laughs> yeah, the chalice version is a bottle. It's of, actually drinkable. Yeah, it's a bottle of beer. <laughs> you just spray all over yourself. <laughs> that was my final. Oh, look, I, I actually did like the end bit where he plays the tape. Yeah, yeah. And it's not the right tape. Again, Donnie Pleasance, his face while that's playing, brilliant. I just think it was a nice touch. It was a nice little twist. Yeah. That Pliskin had fucked him anyway. You know. Yeah, correct. And it kind of showcased that Pliskin once again was not was just like those other guys. He would turn on you if he had to. Correct. So I really liked that. It kind of played into that anti-hero stuff and it just gave me the, the appropriate ending that I was after. Yeah, the only thing I was uh, questioning was... By the end of it, we don't really have a sense that the president is a bad guy. So I didn't get why Snake was fucking. Well, I got the sense that um, you know the president just got back into it and just back into the swing of things and didn't really display the appropriate care really about the people care. that had died when Pliskin yeah. sort of asked him the question. But other than that, I was sort of like. Are we just saying the president is a bad person because he's the president? <laughs> is anyone who's a politician yeah. and is the president a bad person? If well, that Pliskin? was kind of what they were going with. And Pliskin was kind of like, he didn't like the answer that he got, so he yeah. did what he would, like, this was Pliskin all over. This is what he would always do. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, lighten up, Snake. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I didn't have any other locks. I actually but, had yeah. I had a couple that I I forgot to mention, but there was a there's a shot when uh, Pliskin first moves down the floors when he gets into New York, and someone scurries across the background. Mm. I loved it because I was looking at that and I was just I just got Halloween, just obviously because yeah. you know directed by Carpenter. I just got this little bit of Halloween and I thought. A little bit more of that would have done well to serve that uh, that sort of feeling of of fear and uh, the unknown. What when when Pliskin was sort of first going into it, I really actually yeah. like that. I did mention the effects too, but I think I've got to give a mention to that standout one that they always kind of talk about that James Cameron put together when he's in the glider and yeah. the computer screen shows flying over over New York and shows the outline of the buildings. Um, yeah. And I didn't know it for such a long time, but it was, you know, that Cameron put together, Cameron and, and a few of the other guys put together models of the buildings and that that, that was tape. They just put, like, reflective tape oh, really? and shot it under a black light because computer effects were too expensive. And it's, I mean, you watch it now and if you didn't know that, you still wouldn't, you still wouldn't pick up on it. It still looks like a computer image. Yeah. 
So it's, yeah, it's really, really uh, impressive. Yeah, very impressive. I didn't know that James Cameron was even involved. Yeah, well, I, I knew about the shot, but then it was only recently that I, uh, I think it was on a commentary from Carpenter or an interview from Carpenter who basically said, yeah, that was James Cameron basically put that shot together. Yeah, it's a really good shot. Yeah, And it works in 1981, and this probably segues into my dislikes. Obviously, the age of the film hurts some of the visual effects. Mm. They don't stand up, but that's to be expected. It's not really the film's fault. It's the age of what, of this period of film plus the budget. Yeah. Trying to kind of expand scope with little money is difficult. And so some of those shots are good, like as you said, the one, the James Cameron one that you mentioned. Some of them are not. And that's just because it's an older film that didn't have the technology or mm. the money. Yep. So it's probably hard to give that a kicking, but I think, yeah, if we're being dead serious, that it takes you out of the film watching it now. For the most part, it really it, it does the job. But I feel yeah. where you lose that is that they set up this scope from the outside of the city when people are looking at it and when you see the skyline and the nighttime and things like that. But as soon as you get in there, you'd lose any sense that it's New York. It's just any yeah. old place with some buildings. And this is probably budget, but you don't get to see any... I mean, I'd imagine if it was made today, you'd get some sort of set piece in some fucking skyscraper or something like that that gives you the sense of, of the scale of New York City. You'd get yeah. something that involved landmarks in New York City. I mean, I, I felt like, and maybe I missed it, but I felt like when they go into the theatre... That's the perfect opportunity to say this is Broadway now or something. We're, yeah. we're on Broadway and we go into the theatre and this is what you're watching. Like That, I think, really hurt it because it's sort of you go into New York City, escape from New York City. There's no more famous city in the world to set it. But when you actually get Snake into the city, you couldn't even tell it was New York City. Yeah, um, they don't take advantage of it. No, um, and, and it's... Again, that's budgetary. I think they tried in a couple of elements, like the cab, take something you know that's synonymous with New York City and throw something like that in there. So that's why you get the character of Cabby. But like I said, I felt like there was a couple of opportunities yeah. to to continue on with that sort of thing as well. But it just gets lost, and and that I think that's to its detriment. Yeah, and look, my biggest dislike, and I mentioned it to the start. The scope isn't there. So all the ingredients are there for something really exciting. But because the scope's not there, and I said before, and I'm not knocking Carpenter because this isn't specifically his genre, so to speak, but it's, it, it's not particular. It's a touch light on action. Yeah, it is. Like, there's not a lot of shootouts or set piece or anything like that. And I know it was 1981, so as you say, we were almost 10 years away from this, or at least five or six years away from this sort of period where we had this golden golden period of, of really quality action films. But there's no real... I mean, Pliskin does very little mm. when you actually look at it. 
I mean, if we get this picture in 1992 and, uh, you know, Steven Seagal is finding his way oh, into New oh. York City, <laughs> we could expect Magic. these set pieces, couldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> I, I tell you, the, the fight with the big wrestling bloke would have gone a little bit differently because um, if it was Steven Seagal, the wrestler never would have stood a chance. He wouldn't have been able to get yeah. a hand on him. <laughs> he just he would have been fucking s- talking about how to... Trying to teach him how to be a man or whatever yeah, the fuck he's yeah. doing in, on deadly ground. Would have slapped him into oblivion. I'm not saying that it doesn't, because to me it works more as a thriller. If you, it, it, because because it's not action packed. No, and it's I, not. I, the, the 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 thing with that is, it's such a good action premise. That yeah. it's sort of like if it's not packed full of action, you sort of feel a little bit let down. Yeah, I mean, not not greatly because I think they make up for it by giving you that weird, that that interesting society and that strangeness in the city and that lawless land. They give you that. Yeah. And I think that makes up for some of it. But, I mean, I, I guess this is probably apples and oranges somewhat, but I look at Mad Max 2, which was made at the, in the exact same year as this. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that is absolutely frenetic. You know, the action is just incredible. Yeah. Even today, like even looking at Mad Max 2 now. It's still great. I still can't get over that shot of that poor bastard hitting the (laughs) flipping over about 50 times. Yeah. Breaking his leg and leave it in the film. (laughs) Look, John Carpenter didn't want to kill anyone. I understand that. Yeah, John totally Carpenter didn't didn't commit to putting his actors in danger. So, I mean, I'm sorry if you're not doing that. If you're not George Miller, at least George Miller's a doctor, as we mentioned before. He can help him on set. If something something goes pear shaped, yeah. Doctor Miller can can roll in there and help out. But it's chalk and cheese as far as the the excitement level. Yeah, goes. definitely, definitely. Yeah, Mad Max is super exciting. Yeah. If you don't have someone leaping off a truck onto another truck, I don't want to know you. <laughs> exactly. While it's moving, should we shoot this with stunt cables and stuff? No, 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 fuck that. <laughs> just just yeah, get on there yeah. and do it. But even something, yeah, like, uh, even something like The Warriors, which was set in New York, I'm a little bit biased because I do love that movie, but even it had... Uh, Similar things that I think could have worked for this movie, like the the the, the whole thing about the warriors. I mean, it's even it's an even more straightforward premise. Is just that they have to on foot get through other territories of other gangs, and I feel like this could have done with some of that. I feel like this could have done with Pliskin coming to you know having to get through. Like, what, what, why couldn't he have when he was first tracking the president's? Wristband. I know he goes through a couple of people, but why couldn't he have come across some gang's territory that that didn't want him to pass or something like that? And we get a bit yeah. of we get a bit of a blue there and a bit of action there, and perhaps get a showcase of his skills. Yeah, because that's the other thing that's missing. We know that Pliskin is an ex member of the special forces, mm. uh, and we know that he robbed the Federal Reserve, and we know that he's a bad motherfucker but we never really see it in the no. sense of we don't see his skill sets. No, that's right. And this is where I come back to Carpenter. 
none of the action scenes are shot with like the the fights, the choreography, of the fights are a little bit a little bit poor. Um, the shootouts aren't exactly you know pulse pounding, mm. and it's be I think it's possibly because Carpenter's a much better director of the slow build and the slow burn. Yeah, and you see it in Halloween, you see it in the thing. And that shit works a treat for those movies. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. And I feel like what we're talking about could have pepped up a couple of those dull spots where they were moving from one sort of story point to another, but you just had five to ten minutes where it just felt like not much was going on. Yeah. And a big-time explosion somewhere in there. Yeah. Just liven things up a little. Again, much like um, Larry Cohen last week, we're, we're telling John you know, John Carpenter all about filmmaking, yeah. which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And look, I'm not, I, I, I do not, I'm not in any way, shape or form saying Carpenter can't handle handle any of this stuff as a director. He can, no. but it's not his, it's not his bag. Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's fair. And, and I even think something that's... like that, like They Live, which I think is a, is a better sort of, it has better action set pieces because it's partial action film, partial sort of horror film. Mm. And the fight between Roddy Piper and Keith David. <laughs> it goes for a solid awesome. 10 minutes. <laughs> but, you know, you listen to any interviews with Keith David, um, and I did, he was interviewed in that um, Searching for Darkness yep. documentary on Shutter. And he says, you know, him and Roddy Piper just, they, they sort of matched it, they just sort of choreographed it out. Yeah. And because Piper was a wrestler, it's kind of what you get. Well, that's you know, his you bag. Get a great sort of choreography. To you get it. 10 minutes of testicle pounding action. Yeah, exactly. But Carpenter's better, his, his, his action sort of work is better in They Live, but it's still not, I don't believe what he's most comfortable with. No, and I guess the thing that's missing from this one that you see more of in They Live is he has a chance to do, I mean, that's more of that sci-fi that sci-fi setup where he has a chance to explore a bit of that that sort of social commentary and a bit of the, the there's different things to explore. Same with The Thing. You get yeah. a few portions of action in The Thing, but that suits his slow build business up to a T because it's got a bit of that it's it's got a bit of that sort of gory horror stuff in it and you've got that that whole vibe of we don't know who this is so that that suits him yeah. down to the ground whereas this doesn't feel like it's got as much of those things it is just supposed to be just a, a pure sort of action ride yeah so i would probably put this more as a thriller with slight action Undertones, mm. and again, that's not a bad thing. I'm just saying that it doesn't. It doesn't. It's not. It's not super exciting. But to me, even then, yeah. it's a, it's not a thriller. It doesn't have the elements that I would put in a thriller. So it's it's mm. for me, it sits in action, but it's not super exciting action movie fair. Yeah, so it's kind of weirdly placed. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. It's definitely got those elements that he is good at that would fit thrillers and, and slashes. And, yeah. And so that's probably going towards your point of saying that, you know, it's, it's maybe not his preferred genre and his preferred style and, and that kind of shows. And six million bucks, based on what they were reaching for, is not a lot. No. Yeah, no. It's not a lot. Because they were reaching 
and they don't quite get there because, as you say, once they get inside the, the walls of Manhattan, it doesn't feel like New York City. No. And that's your budget. Yep. Play. Yep. With, with Pliskin, we were talking about Pliskin before, the one thing he lacks is a truly memorable one-liner. Or something of that nature. Well, that and a truly memorable kind of action scene. Even the wrestling fight yeah. is, is is kind of fun, but it doesn't stand out as, as one of the all-time great sort of action sequences, which is, I mean, what you've just said is, is, is the reason why I kind of don't see him up in the tier with some of those other guys that... That he gets yeah. put in sometimes. You know, he hasn't got a he hasn't got an if it bleeds, we can kill it. Or something no, like that. No. Certainly lacking something. Which is disappointing because I think you th- you throw that in and you give him a, a real nice set piece. Yeah, his stock goes up. Yeah, and I mean when you get to the sequel and he's, he shows off his basketball skills and his surfing skills, I mean that's what we're looking for. You know, those, those real kind <laughs> of hell. big chickens. I forgot about that. <laughs> oh my god, I forgot about um, Escape from LA and all its bloody wank about <laughs> playing basketball and surfing with Peter Fonda and all this fucking bullshit. I mean, come on, I read something the other day saying Carpenter Carpenter says that. Escape from LA is the better picture, and I'm like, what are you on? <laughs> You've lost your mind on that. I've actually got to watch it again, I think, because I'm not sure that I finished it, to be honest, but I, I've seen those sequences. <laughs> that tells you where it was at. Well, I, I think because it seems to have got this reputation as just this kind of fun ride, even though it's just ridiculous, but I remember it being... I mean, the effects are a whole different kettle of fish because they're early computer effects. So they're worse yeah. than the effects in, in this one because despite, you know, losing a bit of the scope and whatever, the scope's not great if it's a giant tsunami that you're surfing that looks like shit. Like, <laughs> I yeah. That works. Uh, yeah, that basketball sequence is an absolute favourite of mine. <laughs> yeah, it's a shocker. Um, <laughs> Yeah. But that's why you need see looking at this, looking at Escape from New York, you need a hundred million dollar budget for Escape from New York. Yeah, I think you do because it's you wanna you wanna get that scope and you wanna do what they're asking, you need a hundred mil. Hmm. You need you need to you can then you can then go the places that they wanted to go. Yeah. Even if you can't go to all those places, you can certainly make some places look like New York with the computer effects now, which he, which Carpenter never had the option to do. Exactly. So that's not his fault, you know. And I've, I said it before: six million bucks. They did a damn good job. Yeah. With six million dollars. Yep. Which you know, I mean, it's the same way I feel about when I watch Jaws. And I sit there and I think they had $9 million. And, you know, Jaws is an outstanding picture for that type of money mm. um, in that era. And I think Escape from, LA, Escape from New York deserves the same sort of credit for having so such a little amount of money in the scheme of things and being able to push it as far as they can. But it comes with a few negatives, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah I mean, they, they reach for the stars here. And, you know, 
they only had enough money to build a rocket to, you know, get them halfway there, I guess. Well, really, they were skydiving. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like because they were reaching a long way for what they were after. Yeah. I mean, they're not... But you know what? It's a pretty damn good skydive. Yeah, they're not saying escape from some fucking random rural town that we have enough money to shoot in. Yeah. They're saying the biggest city in the world. Escape so. from, yes. <laughs> yes. It's not like that. It's, it, it, they're, 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 they're swinging for the fences and they kind of they kind of give you a single, yeah. maybe a double. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, they do pretty well under the circumstances, but there are problems with it. Correct. The only other thing I had was, is it not strange that the President of the United States sounds like an Englishman? <laughs> Yeah, well, this is, you know, this has been brought up a few times. It is strange. It is strange. <laughs> but then we had the, you know, the governor of California who sounded like Arnold Schwarzenegger sounds. <laughs> it's not that far-fetched, is it? Really? Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I, I, I forgot about that. It seems the funny thing to me is there's parts where he's just, He's just talking like he normally talks. But there's a couple of times where it seems like he's trying to bang on an accent. Like when, when they're trying to get in the car, he's like, come on, we're wasting time. <laughs> sounds like he's trying to bang on an American accent for one or two scenes there. And then he's just back to, come on, Donald. oh, bugger it, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. And then you hear the sound of a can going, <laughs> opening up. <laughs> And a lump of spam flies out. Oh, man. <laughs> That's what you're telling me? Yeah. It could have, I mean, I don't no. know what it was. Was Donald, again, on a, on a short couple of day gig and not getting paid his, you know, as much as he should have? Because maybe that was it. He's just like, uh, I'm giving you what you're paying for. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'll do it. But you won't get the accent. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You pony up, you you'll get an accent more out of me. For that. <laughs> no, it's just strange that he's, he's an Englishman. It is strange. It is strange. <laughs> you could have got any any other actor to do that. Atkins. Well. T. Atkins could have been the president. That that it seems too perfect. It seems too too good a fit. <laughs> That's that would have made the film better, no question. We could have chucked Pleasance into some other role in there. Yeah, I mean, I totally understand why he's there. You know, he was kind of like a carpenter mainstay with Doctor Loomis and Halloween Two and and stuff like that, where he'd obviously been around. So I appreciate him being there, and he's certainly not unwelcome. It just seems weird that he's, he's, you know, they've got an Englishman playing the president and they don't even bother to hide the fact that he's fucking still English. <laughs> no, no, that's right. I mean, that was the strange bit. I had one more and it was a sort of specific one. Brain getting into the room with the president. No one's letting him into that room. Yeah. I mean, the president's already been taken once. He seems to be uh, less guarded. This time, everyone else is at the fight, <laughs> so he's been yeah. left. He's been left with Romero or whatever his name is. Yeah, that's right. Who who doesn't appear to have a gun or anything? And then there's a couple of others in there too, isn't there? There's a couple of others in there, but Brain even when they got Romero and yeah, um, she Barbo, shoots the them. I, maybe maybe they had guns. I couldn't. Um, I, I didn't quite catch it on that, but I just felt like. 
you know, we're going to the effort of calling this bloke brain and, and talking about the schemes that he, he sort of runs with. And the one that we see him run is just, oh, Duke told me to come in. Yeah. <laughs> he gets a little the, bit kind of convenient. Yeah, he gets the, no, you didn't. And then he starts talking about the cyanide in the hair and all that sort of thing. That and look, just didn't quite work out for me. That was the that was the one point where I was just like, yeah, he jet that he, that was just kind of butchered. But you hit the nail on the head, though. You've just Pliskin had already intercepted the president and taken him, and then they had to get him. Yeah, they had to stop Pliskin. And they did, and they got the president back. So you you leave him pretty underguarded while everyone else goes to watch WrestleMania. <laughs> Downstairs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems a bit of a strange thing to do. Maybe it's because they thought with Pliskin being indisposed, it's unlikely that anyone's going to do this, and they trusted Brain. I think that's kind of what I got out of it. But yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty sort of conveniently done. Yes, I wasn't a big fan of that. Again, not not a not a deal breaker, but it was just a sort of standout scene for me where I thought. That just really flopped. Yeah. Anything else? No, that was it. All right, that was Escape from New York. Look, only a sprinkle of Atkins in that one, but, you know, pretty decent, you know, pretty decent sort of stuff. Atkins will never, he'll never let you down, even when he's only doing a five-minute roll. Exactly. He would have been working on his fragrance. Yeah, that's all right. He had bigger things. <laughs> so he had, to had a couple about. of days to work with. Correct. He didn't. Uh, yeah, he had. He had. He, he was thinking about his his brand at that point. Exactly. He was ahead of the curve, mate. It was nineteen eighty one. No one was having brands, but Atkins, <laughs> Chalice by Atkins, was currently in the pipeline. <laughs> exactly. All right. Uh, you can find us on Podomatic, iTunes, and Spotify. Send us an email at thrillme at iinet.net.au. We're on Facebook at Thrill Me Podcast Australia, Podomatic at thrillme.podomatic.com, and Instagram at thrillmepodcastau. Jump on there and rate and review us wherever you can find us. Our next episode, another Atkins cameo. I've got some problems with Atkins in this next one. So stay tuned. Hmm. That is 1982's Creep Show. But until then, take it easy, and we'll catch up with everyone later. Cheers. Find the podcast at Podomatic or on iTunes. Don't forget to rate and review. Like us on Facebook at Thrill Me Podcast Australia, or contact us at Thrill Me, or one word, all lowercase, at iinet.net.au.